In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It was the theologian George Michael, who at one time in the late 80s, early 90s, who sang a song wearing a black vest and um, jeans and black boots, leaning up against a, a jukebox, who said, you've got to have faith, 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 baby, like that. Thank you for indulging my memory. It's what he said, and we listen, and, and we go, yeah, and we tap our toes, and we go right on, and we even memorize the lyrics, and we sing it in the shower, and yet, what do we learn about faith? Not much. Is it just sort of this general optimism of things? Faith in what? Uh, faith for what reason? Uh, faith by what strength? He, he doesn't answer the question. Oh. And that's in part why we are listening to the letter that James writes to these fledgling churches of the first century. Because he wants to get down into the nitty-gritty about what does faith look like? Faith in what? Faith for what? Faith by what strength? By what means? What does it mean to live with an everyday faith? Just, you know, we're not walking around with, with these auras over our head. What does it just mean to live in a real world with everyday faith? That's the question we think he's answering quite well in this very old letter. And two weeks ago, we unpacked what he had to say in chapter 2 in what is perhaps the most controversial passage in the entirety of the New Testament, where he starts getting into our business about how does one trust in the goodness of God? Is one trusting in that by faith in what Jesus has done, or is it by faith or is it by the, the love that proceeds from that faith? And you can go back and listen to the tape about how we went there, but Where we landed was this, there is no work of faith we could ever do that would be a substitute for what Jesus has done. It's the gospel. There's nothing you and I can do that is some sort of stand-in for what Jesus has done. What he did is full and finished and enough. And yet there is no faith in what he has done that does not emanate in the sort of love that Jesus himself demonstrated, even though our versions of that love are frail and flawed and sometimes full of mixed motives. But that's where it lands. And so last week, you might have thought, gosh, the the love that proceeds from faith, does that mean that we should all move to Uganda, Pastor Edward? And he would say, yes, it does. (laughs) No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't say that. That's why we had Pastor Edward preach the next section in the book. Because inasmuch as we might think that these works of love that we might want to give ourselves into means that we've got to move to another continent, James says, you know what? How about we just start with your mouth? What you talk about and the heart that it reflects. Why don't we start there if you're interested in what it means to live by faith? And so we did. And this week, we're going to discover that James would say, yeah, great, I'm glad you have bold dreams about what it means to live by faith, but how about you start with how you live in community? Because that's as much a testimony to this world as whatever bold, daring feat you might do by faith. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. What does it mean to live in community? And especially when we get sideways with each other. But that never happens, right? The peace by which we live is part and parcel of the testimony of the persuasiveness of Jesus, Jesus will say. Of all the things Jesus might have prayed for in John 17, He prays for oneness of the body because he knew 
It wasn't just a good idea. It would be a miracle. So what does it mean to live in peace on the basis of truth in a body full of diversity and differences and antagonisms and arguments and all that? That's the topic from our six verses we're going to listen to today. We're going to learn three things from James about peace in this community and how it's an expression of faith. We're going to learn about the the hope of that peace. We're going to learn about the deepest threat to that peace. And then we're going to learn about the path in that peace. The hope of it, the threat to it, and the path in it. So if you're able to stand, we're in chapter 3 again, starting in verse 13. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This text, if you will, is a hinge verse in that it really connects what comes before it and what comes after it in a really thick way. Um, what comes before it, as you heard me say, dealt with how do, you, how do you mind your mouth when it comes to the life of faith. And next week, we'll hear about how do you manage quarrels and disputes and getting sideways with one another. This passage is a hinge between those two things, but it's also the hope that we have of ever being able to mind our mouths and mind our intramural squabbles. This passage is the hope of that. And James will say, the hope of minding our mouth and our squabbles, the hope of peace in this body comes down to one thing, wisdom. And you heard it there in the first verse. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you're going to have peace in a community, you need more than just knowing how people work. You need more than this, you know, what they call emotional IQ, emotional intelligence. You need, James says, a wisdom that is given and then is applied in a body of people. That wisdom. And for four months, we we went through the book of Proverbs. And in a lot of those Proverbs, you kind of remember, it was these little short little phrases uh, full of imagery and full of uh, quick words, and, and they were tried and tested human experience. James would say, Wisdom is that. But the wisdom he's talking about here is more than just experience that you've learned from life. This wisdom has a different origin. This wisdom is from God. This wisdom has come down from above. And you've heard that he he, he says it twice. The wisdom that is coming down from above, the wisdom that is from above, it has a different character because it it is more than just something that you learned. It is something more than discovered. It's something that's bestowed. And it's necessary to live that way. Now, um, 
a lot of you in this room will hear that and will go, yeah, I get it. That's why I'm here. I believe that God has spoken. I believe that God has revealed himself. I believe there is a wisdom that is from above. But I recognize that on any given Sunday, there may be any number of people in this room that go, eh, you know, might be a stretch. Um, I know that people learn a lot and we pass that down and that's got a certain authority to it. But the idea that there's a wisdom from above, uh, it's a bridge too far for me. I learned of an author this week by the name of Greg Hurwitz. Anybody ever read somebody by Greg Hurwitz? Yeah, neither have I. Um, He writes thrillers, but you know what? Marvel Comics so loved his writing that they said, we want you to write anything you want about any Marvel character. And so he picked The Punisher. Anybody read any of The Punisher? Neither have I. Really strong character, right? But Greg Hurwitz in this interview... Somebody asked him, what do you think about religious ideas? And he said, you know, I don't, I don't come from a particular faith tradition of anything, but, but he said, if you'll just think about the story of Jesus, just the story, do you realize what just the story of Jesus has done in, in human history? It's inspired the building of cathedrals. Go to Asheville and step into the Basilica of St. Lawrence and you will be transported. It's a different kind of edifice. There's a certain ornate and majesty to it. And that was inspired by the Jesus tradition, the Jesus story. And, and he's saying, look, you, anybody that looks at religious faith and just sort of writes it off as a fairy tale, his argument was people are not inspired to build cathedrals by fairy tales. Uh, theaters and amusement parks, yes, not cathedrals. And so he's, his argument is you can write it off all you want, but look, Anything that inspires the building of cathedrals must have tapped into something really deep and profound in us, and we know it's deep. Which means we might even actually believe that there is something bigger than our world that we call wisdom. And so when James says that there's a wisdom from above, you are not nutso for thinking that that might be true. But James is saying that this wisdom is not a generic wisdom. It's not just sort of, I know how to navigate life. This wisdom that is the hope of our peace in our time in this community is a wisdom of meekness. Meekness. Now, as soon as I use that word meekness, all of you have certain associations with that word, and I'll bet you most of them are wrong. Because when you hear a person is meek, you immediately assume that they are timid, reserved, quiet, uh, maybe even cowardly. They cower in a corner. You associate mice with meekness. That is not what James means by meekness. It is not what the Bible means by meekness. You've heard this word before in this letter. James in chapter 1 says, receive the implanted word with what? Meekness. So receive it with timidity? Tentativeness? That's not what he means. You receive the word with a certain submission, submissiveness based on humility. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard him say, blessed are the what? The meek, for they will inherit the earth. So is he encouraging timidity and cowardice? That's not what meekness means because Jesus himself even ascribes the same word to himself. Six chapters later in Matthew 11, he says, take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Why? Because I am gentle, same word, protatus, and lowly of heart. No one would look at Jesus and say, yep, timid, reserved. Meekness is something else. Meekness is a strength restrained. 
It is, it is a submissiveness to something of even greater gain than what might lead you to be retaliatory or full of recrimination. Meekness is what Peter uses when he talks about if anybody should ever ask you for a defense of your faith, you offer it with what? Gentleness and respect. Gentleness there is the same word for meekness here. That's meekness. Strength restrained. It's the submission to something greater than itself. And that is what is the very hope of our peace among ourselves because there's plenty of moments when we get sideways with each other when the last thing you will ever think about Dean or doing is being meek. You will want to fight fire with fire. You will want to recriminate. You will want to defend yourself more. You will make your defense of yourself the greatest thing in you. Meekness says there may be something even greater than just defending yourself. And that, friends, is the hope of our peace among us. And you will hear that and you will think, isn't that obvious? But friends, the reason that is the hope of our peace is because of the deepest threat to our peace that we have to reckon with. There is a threat to our peace and that peace actually lies within each human heart. And what lies within each human heart is reinforced by all sorts of things outside of us. And that threat is what seeps from us like water from a sponge. And that threat is a threat because really it acts as an alternative wisdom. Not a wisdom from above, an alternative wisdom. And the reason we call it an alternative wisdom is because it sure feels like it's right. Because it is tried and tested and proven. It's proven. Otherwise, people wouldn't walk in that way, that alternative way. It has worked so to speak. And what you hear starting around verse 16 is not so much an outline of that alternative way so much as you're going to hear the symptoms of somebody that's embraced that alternative way. What are the symptoms of that alternative way that is the greatest threat to peace? It's what you hear spoken of starting in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be boast, do not boast and be false to the truth. There it is. There's the symptoms of buying into this alternative way. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. He says it twice in the passage. It must be that important in six verses. The word there for bitter jealousy, a few verses earlier, he's talking about what? Our mouths, that when they bring out curses, it's like we're giving off salt water. Anybody been to the beach and you take a gulp of salt water, you spit it out because you know too much. It's brine. It's awful. It's nasty. Your palate can't touch it. Your palate can't deal with it. And that's what it means to hurl out curses from the same mouth that's out to bless. It's like salt water. It's the bitterness to it. It's the bitter jealousy here. Selfish ambition. It's the same word Paul uses when he writes to the church at Philippi and he says, have no rivalry or selfish ambition in your midst. Don't go there. It'll kill you. It'll kill us. It's the same word. So James and Paul are both writing to the same condition in very different places. Why? Because it is so natural to us. It is instinctual. It is as ancient as it is modern. And what it is, 
is when we compare ourselves to one another, which we invariably do. And when you compare yourself to one another, you know where it can go? It will either go towards pride because you're so glad that you're better than them, or it will go towards this hollow feeling inside of you where you feel like you're nothing because you're nothing like they are. And depending on which of the responses you get, it will lead to certain actions. And that actions will reveal the extent to which you've bought into this other wisdom. But that alternative wisdom, friends, is our story. It's the story of this world. And it is the story that tells you if you would have any goodness in this life, it's all on you. That's the alternative wisdom. And you know what? It has worked. Because we believe it. And when we believe it, all sorts of things happen. And we become so worried about who we are and how we're seen. Jonathan Haidt, he's a a psychologist. He's a a professor of business ethics. I didn't know there was such a thing. Um, A professor of business ethics who has studied a lot about human nature. And it's his estimation that when you boil it down to the way we work, He says this, we care more about looking good than about truly being good. People are obsessed with their reputations. It's true. You and I are concerned about how we're seen and will do just about anything to preserve a certain understanding of who we are and therefore we are motivated to outwit, outlast, outlearn, outpace, whatever it is. Devil take the hindmost. It is our most natural compulsion. It is our most natural compulsion to want so desperately what other people have. That's the bitter jealousy that James is worried about. It is so natural for us to want something so badly that it is as if nobody else exists. That's the selfish ambition James is warning about. And if you think you're immune if you're involved in religious work or philanthropic work, let me disabuse you of that false estimation. There is nothing like sanctified sanctimony. There is nothing like being involved in the work of the Lord that you in your own mind justifies the most unruly behavior in which you think you are the most important thing and you say it's all about God, but actually it's all about you. It's all about me. Because we believe it's all about getting ahead. The greatest threat to peace in this body is a wisdom that sends us scrambling and scratching for superiority. We just want to be on top. He's not coming against pursuing excellence. Nothing wrong with doing your all for the sake of what that is asking of you. The problem is you and I, a lot of times, we think that what we're doing is pursuing excellence when all we're really doing is just trying to be better than somebody else. And when you go there, When you do that, when this quest for being enough, this quest for being superior, why do we do that? Because we have bought into the idea that we will find our meaning in our mastery. When we have mastered something, someone, whatever it might be, we think there is our meaning. More than just getting satisfaction from what we do, we are telling ourselves, if only this would be true of me, then I will be enough. And if we believe that, If we go there, if we embrace that, we will do just about anything to beat somebody else out. To be more than them. And James is saying that will never be a recipe for peace and purity in a community. 
when we make our superiority the number one thing, when we think more of ourselves than those who are else in our midst. And he says, that is a wisdom, James says, that is a wisdom that is no wisdom. In fact, he says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Earthly in that it, it has no regard for that which is of the world, of beyond the world. It, it only believes that that which is here is what is true. It is earthly in that, you know, uh, the, the, some things have a quality that others do not. If you bought an Edsel in the 1950s or you bought a Cadillac in the 1950s, you soon learned one of them had quality and the other did not. When Paul says of our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies, the earthly body is not just something that is imperfect. The earthly body is something that will not endure, that will not last, that has a shelf life and will give himself up in time because it will deteriorate. James is saying that the wisdom that you buy into around here, it's not going to last. It won't endure because it has no reference to things outside of us. So when he says it's demonic, does that mean that if you buy into the way the world ordinarily operates, does that mean you're demon-possessed? No. But something C.S. Lewis writes in that, that famous, if um, uh, intriguing, um, book called The Screwtape Letters, in which he imagines some, some pen pal uh, relationship between two uh, demons from the underworld discussing how best to lure humanity away from God. It's there that uh, in one of those letters between one demon and another, uh, Wormwood writes, It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Like the idea that there may be a wisdom that is not of this world that says unto you, it's not all on you if you would know goodness and mercy and sweetness. That's an idea that a demonic person or a demonic influence would like to keep out of your minds. And so too. And so it is. But the wisdom from on high and the wisdom of this world, they oppose one another. But it's really easy. If you don't buy this one, you'll buy into this one. And that's why Leslie Newbegin, a missionary to India of many decades, said this. If the biblical story does not control our thinking, then we will be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. We will let other ideas reign and chaos will ensue. And it will affect our family and it will affect our souls. And all of that sounds really uh, fearsome, but what does it look like in reality? You know what? We don't have to go any further than what our kids and their parents saw last Sunday night in the Queen of Cotway. I've got a few scenes we've pieced together here. But if you don't know that storyline, it is about this uh, young lady who grows up in the slums of Uganda who shows an amazing um, prowess in learning chess. Uh, she begins to outstrip all of her peers. Uh, she begins to amaze her coach, her mentor. And uh, she even starts to win championships. And, and by this point in the montage, she has already won a championship in Sudan. And so in this first scene, you're going to hear, you're going to watch her demonstrating her prowess before her own coach. And then you're going to see two more very brief scenes where you get to see what happens in her heart. What happens to shift her thinking about how she views her family in view of her prowess and then how she views herself 
in view of her prowess. So watch the greatest threat to peace in a community in living color. Now, you know my plan is to attack your B5, yes? So you must bring your opponent forward to defend, is it? Fiona, why are you developing over here? Your problem is on B5. Look, I put my pawn on B5. You take my pawn, my knight attacks your queen. We exchange queens. My knight attacks your king. I take your rook. With respect, coach, I would not move that way. You must. You are compelled by my position. If you come for my knight, I attack your king and take your rook. You see? You can see eight moves ahead? You said your project would make Fiona's character stronger. Since you took her to this Sudan, she refuses to do many of her tasks. Wake up, Fiona. Mm-mm. Time to wash the cassava. It isn't proper for the tournament winner to wash cassava. Who should wash them then? Those of us who are not tournament winners, we're the cassava washers. Is that it? I am her mother, and she should do as I say. She believes your game will solve every problem of her life. Why not then? Let us wash your feet, madam. When I was a girl, I was told stories of a village by the lake that never runs short of maize, where there is no fighting. I never found that place, Mr. Katende. Your children deserve better. Enough food to eat, roof over their heads, safety. You have shown my children a paradise, yes. But now they feel out of place where they are. That girl from Egypt flies to Russia to see her coach. She has her own computer to practice with. She has biscuits. She has clothing. Why does this suddenly bother you now? Because I want that girl. Coach, I want her. They will not be able to return to their old lives because they have tested yours. Not here, not there. Like ghosts who cannot rest. If that happens, Mr. Kate. I will hold you responsible. resigned that she's given up on the game. I think this is too much for a 14-year-old. 
told you never leave the group, eh? I'll never be a master. I'll never be good enough. She comes to show great skill in something wonderful and brilliant. But look how her desire to be better than another, the, the jealousy that's sort of naturally welling up within her, what does it do? It, it leads her to think that the things, her obligations to her family are unimportant now. And then when she's finally met her match and, and she is having to lost and she's vanquished, what happens? She, she has lost herself because she sort of put herself in that mastery and that is because she was finding her meaning in her mastery. And that is the way of this world, friends. And when you let that take hold in your heart, all sorts of things get set aside. All sorts of loves and responsibilities to one another, all sorts of ways of thinking what defines your meaning, what defines your worth. That is the greatest threat to peace within our own hearts. It's the greatest threat to the peace among this body and anybody. And because it is so natural in its compulsion it feels so normal it's it's on the big screen for goodness sake isn't that everybody's experience because it feels so natural and so normal and yet it is so dangerous and so devastating do you see why we are so desperate for something or someone to rescue us from that first impulse it's that deep we need something but we don't have it but the truth is we do there is someone who will come to displace that threat of peace in us, in our body, from taking root. And that is the one whom Jesus, or who James called Lord. I know you've been listening to this letter and you think that maybe James is just a Rotarian. You know, here's a few skills, a few life skills for us all to embody and we'll all have a great life together. He's not a Rotarian, he's a Christian. James doesn't call Jesus Lord as a throwaway verse. He calls Jesus Lord because he believes that it is this Jesus who is the wisdom who came down from heaven. That it is this Jesus who said, you must be born again, which is the same word for coming down from heaven, from above. It is this Jesus who demonstrated the greatest exhibition of meekness ever known to humanity by restraining his strength in the place of the cross. Why? so that he might make peace between us and the Father through his blood, between us and God entirely through his blood. And that peace is irrevocable and will not change. And it is ours through faith in him, through the finished work of Jesus. That's the gospel. Any hope, therefore, that you and I would ever live in that peace and then be able to extend or preserve that peace together as a body will always depend on believing on the peace that's already been made. The hope of our peace to displace the threat to that peace will always come down to the peace that's been made. So where does that leave us? How do we see that peace both born in us and preserved in us? What is that path in peace? It doesn't happen on its own. Peace does not naturally occur. Peace is forged. Peace is fought for. How is it fought for? 
It's by made, as it said there in the last verse, it's, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace is something that we take responsibility for. He's addressing the leadership of a body, but what is true of the leadership is true of us all. We are all involved in preserving the peace and purity of the church. If you join this church, your fifth vow is, will you labor to strive for the peace and purity of this body? It's everyone's calling. And it begins with believing in the peace that's already been made and how that peace then compels us to follow the marks of wisdom that James writes. What are the marks of wisdom? It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We could do a whole sermon about just that verse. We're not. I'm going to land this plane really quickly by saying this is the path in peace. Ready? It comes down to knowing, first of all, in whose presence you are whenever there is a disruption of peace in the body. When he says that wisdom is, first of all, pure, that word for pure is the same Greek word for holy. And God alone is holy. And so whenever you're in the midst of a dispute or the one trying to be a peacemaker in a dispute, the first thing you need to remember is that in the midst of that dispute, you're in the presence of God. And perhaps that will change the character and the way in which you conduct that search for peace again. You're in the presence of the Lord and you're in the presence of someone who before he's ever or she's ever related to you is related to God. You have to remember in whose presence you are. You also have to remember in whose shoes you walk. When he talks about peaceable, gentle, and open to reason, those three things just have to do with how you understand yourself and how you are frail, and how you ought to be humble. If you want to be on the debate team at Yale University, they're going to ask you one question. Have you ever been broken on the floor? And by that, it's a debate phrase, meaning that at some point in your argumentative life, you made a case, and then you heard the other side's argument, and you listened to what they said, and at some point you realized you have no way out. They're right. Your case falls apart. And right there, you're broken on the floor. And they ask you, you ever been broken on the floor? And if you say no, they'll say, I don't think you'll be part of this team. Because you don't know what it means to be so humble and to admit and acknowledge that you're wrong. When's the last time you knew that you were wrong and you acknowledged it, folks? When Pastor Isangoma last Sunday preached from James 3 and said, sometimes our silence is as dangerous as what we say in ill speech, I had to apply that this week with my wife. I wasn't broken on the floor, I was broken on the couch. But something that probably needed to be talked about that I hadn't talked about, finally, you know what, let's just talk about it. We got it out there, we talked amicably, I made my case, I expressed my fears, my concerns, we talked about it for a while, and you know what, at some point I said, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong, I was broken on the couch. Part of our ability to be peacemakers in this world, to walk in the path of peace, is to know sometimes in whose shoes we walk. And finally to know for whose good you're after. If you're going to be full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, then, then you are always out for their good. Which may mean sometimes having to speak and act in ways that they don't want to hear it. But if you're for their good and for the truth, being impartial and sincere, then you understand what it means to walk in the way of peace. Our ability 
to seek and make peace in this body will always rest on believing that a peace has already been made between us and God through Jesus. That's our sustenance. That's our hope. That's our acceptance. That's our humility. And therefore, it's why we need this table. Because it is that table that shows us that peace has been made and that peace is secure and it's done and it will never change. And because that is true, we may no longer have to fight to be better than somebody else or to be superior. We may no longer have to worry about ever being seen as wrong. We may just know through our tears when we ask him, are we enough? And Jesus says, you are enough, but because of me. And for that, we give him thanks. And Lord willing, we might act for peace in this body for the days to come. Amen.